Good evening, friends. Good evening, brothers and sisters. We'll be in Daniel chapter 9. We're going to finish Daniel 9 through 12. Do you believe I can do this? I heard a no and I heard a yes. So. Let us pray. Actually, I'm going to pray a confession that comes from the ancient Book of Common Prayer because it has a semblance to what Daniel does in chapter 9. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Have mercy on us, Lord. Spare all those who confess their faults. And restore all those who are penitent according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may live a godly, righteous, and a sober life to the glory of your holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Every child on every road trip in the history of the world has asked what question? Oh, you've been there. (laughs) Yeah. We still ask that, actually. Just in more adult versions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the Bible opens. Well, when you say in the beginning, what are you implying? You're not there yet. There's an end. That too. There's an end. And so we live somewhere. We wish we knew precisely where, but somewhere in the middle of this linear time span, don't we? And we are asking, especially when the world gets difficult and life gets hard, are we there yet? The first hour of a road trip, whether you're an adult on the airplane or a kid in a car, is okay because there's a movie on or something. But after five movies, you're really suffering, aren't you? Especially adults in airplanes going to Israel or England. Really long, right? Your legs and your, yeah, you get old, right? And it happens. Um, We're wondering, are we there? Psalm 13 asks the same question. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I suffer under the stress of my enemies? How long, how long? It asks four times. David asks the question, are we there yet? Um, Tonight, an angel is going to ask the question, are we there yet? I'm going to hop up, if you want to look, to 12 verse 6. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, an angel, who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Daniel himself in chapter 9, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake. There's a sense of waiting in these final chapters of Daniel. These final chapters of Daniel are looking at things that are ahead of Daniel. They're looking also at things that are at the end, the close of this age, that when the Bible says in the beginning, he's seeing some things that say, and then in the end. And so there's this yearning as you've gone through the book and as Daniel's coming to the end, there's this yearning for when is the end? When will we be there? Especially for us who have been in the study of Daniel, we've understood that Daniel's giving us a survival manual for how we survive Babylon. Babylon has reincarnated itself in all the empires since, including our own great nation. This is not the kingdom of God. It has the spirit of Babylon. It has the spirit of Antichrist. How do we, as the people of God, living in a kingdom that's not the kingdom of God, survive the non-kingdom of God? How do we survive the kingdom of Babylon? 
Well, in chapter 1 through 3, we saw that Daniel and his friends survived the furnace of Babylon because they resisted the fare of the Babylonian table. They fasted from the things that Babylon was trying to feed them. Then we saw in chapters 4 and 5 that we survived Babylon through humility. Because Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar both demonstrated pride in those chapters and both of them fell. Chapter 6, we saw that we survived Babylon through prayer. Daniel was devoted to a prayer rule despite what was happening around him. Last week, we saw that we survived Babylon through ascension, recognizing that we are seated with Christ, according to the New Testament, at his throne, and we are raised above the things that are happening here. We don't have to be dominated by the ways, the thinking, or the sins of Babylon. And so tonight we close by realizing that we survive Babylon, not by violence. We don't fight our way through Babylon. We survive Babylon through patience. Patience is going to be our means to survival. So are we there yet? No, we're not. We need patience. But the end is in view. The end is in view here. And the weakness of Babylon is time. Babylon is a temporal kingdom. We have eternity on our side, but every other kingdom has a weakness of time. They won't last forever. So we just have to outlast them. And so we walk faithfully with Christ and we pass down this to the next generation and walk faithfully with Christ and we keep passing down this faithfulness. The kingdom of God will be the last one standing. That's what we're looking for. So we aren't, we aren't playing the strong game. We just got to be stronger than our culture. We just got to be stronger than all those. You have certain words in your head, don't you? We got to be stronger than all those people. (laughs) We're not playing the strong game. We're playing the long game. We understand that God has a plan and he's unfolding the plan. And Daniel has revealed this plan. And so when we see this plan, we say, okay, okay. God is not asking us to be stronger than everyone. He's just asking us to be more patient. Play the long game with Daniel. That's how we will survive. So we must exercise, since we're not there yet, we must exercise patience with purpose. Patience isn't just sitting around, passively waiting. Patience has a purpose in the way that it rests in God's time. Okay, so we have 9, 10, 11, and 12. Um, we're going to spend most of our time in chapter nine. This is, this is the heavyweight chapter. And I am so sorry if this is your first time with us or one of your like very few times with us so far. This is a, this is a difficult section of scripture. So bear with us this week and it gets, maybe it'll be better next time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to survey with you guys now chapters 10, 11, and 12, 10, 11, and 12 are Daniel's last vision. Chapter nine is his second to last vision. So we'll survey that. The reason we're going to survey it is because um, it's. I could stre- I could. I could create an, its own message out of it, but ultimately, I'd rather focus on chapter nine and get on to Ezra and Nehemiah, um, because chapters ten, eleven, and twelve deal with what's called the Maccabean period. It was a period about 150 years before Jesus. It's not recorded in scripture, although you can go read about it in the books of Maccabees. It's actually a very fascinating time period and story, and it will help you see how the Jews expected Jesus to act if you read the book of Maccabees. But um, 10, 11, and 12 deal with that period and then a little bit beyond it. So I'm going to survey that for you. You can read this on your own. Go pick up Maccabees and read it side by side if you like to have some Bible study homework. It would be a really worthwhile endeavor. Um, But here we go. So here's what chapter 10 is about. Chapter 10 is how the vision, Daniel's last vision, how it comes to him. How does Daniel get this vision? Chapter 10 sets that up. That's all chapter 10 is. And what it is, in short, is that angels visit Daniel. A series of angels visit him. Um, Daniel is fasting. Um, You'll see in verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Then on the 24th day, that's when an angel appears to him. 
And the men around Daniel don't see the angel, they, but they sense the glory and they tremble and they hide. And Daniel sees him and falls down. Um, another, uh, the Daniel, the, the angel explains to Daniel, Daniel, from the moment you prayed three weeks ago, I was sent to come and give you a vision, but I was held back by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. What? It's such a tantalizing little piece of scripture where we are given this glimpse into these powers behind empires. The king, the empire of the world at this time is Persia, right? Babylon gives way to Persia. And the prince of Persia is holding back angels from coming to Daniel. It's wild. There is spiritual entities, spiritual powers. And you just wish that Daniel could have explained that a little bit more. Um, but Ephesians 6 is where we get a good New Testament explanation of kind of the background of spiritual warfare. Um, but then Daniel is... Um, the angel's finally released. Um, Gabriel basically comes and saves the day because they can't resist the higher archangels. Um, and Daniel is strengthened and shown the book of truth. So it's called the book of truth. So chapter 11 is now the vision of this book of truth. So chapter 11, uh, what the vision shows. Chapter 11 is complex. It goes back and forth. I will simplify it. There's still going to be questions about little details, and all the scholars still have some questions, but everyone's agreed on the gist of this vision, okay? It's very simple. It's a vision of politics giving way to persecution. And the reader of chapter 10, I hope, will reflect upon the fact that Israel is pit in the middle of this um, pull between two political entities. And Israel would always be pressure to join this political party or that political party for their survival. And Christian, I hope you see that maybe you're in this spot where we're always feeling like we have to pick a side. And the vision of Daniel is in part to show the people of God that, look, sometimes you don't have to pick a side because these sides are petty, their ambitions are silly, and they are short-lived. This is where the vision gives us a bigger picture of politics and persecution. So here's how it goes, okay? Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 11, look at Alexander the Great. He's not named, but he's clearly figured. He comes and he defeats the Persian Empire, establishing the Greek Empire. Alexander shortly falls, takes him like four or five years to conquer the whole world, an incredible feat. He's in his 20s, if I remember. He might be his 30s, but he's very young. And then he dies right after he, con he conquers the whole world. He probably would have conquered more, but he had malaria and he passed away. Um, so then his four generals take over the kingdom. It divides into four kingdoms. That's verses 1 through 5. The rest of the chapter then focuses on two of these four kingdoms. They're named the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Okay, And basically what you see in chapters 6 through 19 is the petty tug-of-war between the North and South Kingdom. They just pull each other back and forth. Now, who's the North Kingdom? It's known as the Kingdom of the, Seleuc the, 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 Seleuc uh, the Seleucids. They're up in Syria. The Southern Kingdom is the Ptolemies. They're down in Egypt. Okay, so mental map for you. Syria, Egypt, who's in the middle? Jerusalem. So they are getting the thrashing of this petty political rivalry. So... Basically, it tells us that they go back and forth until you reach verse 21. Chapter 11, verse 21. The king of the north shall die. And then in verse 21, we see, In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. A usurper, a contemptible person. This historically is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He is the main villain in the books of Maccabees. He is not a good dude. As you can see, he gets leadership by flattery. But what the story then goes on to tell is that he tries to once and for all finish the southern kingdom, the Ptolemies in Egypt. He wants to take over the whole place. So he comes down confident with an army. He shows up to the Egyptian border ready to take it over. And guess who greets him at the border? 
not the kingdom of the south or the Ptolemies, but a general from the growing Roman Empire. And the general basically says, oh, no, you don't. You turn around. And then Antiochus says, should I fight you or turn around? Let me think about it. And the story says that the general then drew a circle with his sword around Antiochus and said, if you cross the circle, you have declared war against me. And Antiochus is like, okay, fine, I'm out of here. And so he leaves humiliated. Thinking he was going in to be victorious, he leaves humiliated. He did not see Rome intervening. Rome is not an empire yet, but they're growing, right? Because they take over after Greece. Um, we're getting close to the time of Jesus here. We're about 150 years out. Um, so Antiochus, on his way back up to his throne in the north, he vents his humiliation on the Jews. And the Maccabees details this uh, gruesomely, some very graphic details. I'll spare it because we do have kids with us. Um, but horrific persecution. And that's, um, that's described in chap- verses 20 to 28. Um, then the... Verse 29 continues the persecution. It talks about the abomination that makes desolate. Um, Antiochus um, goes into the temple, and there he puts up an altar of Zeus. So it's Yahweh and Zeus. And the high priests are either going to die or get on board with his program. So the abomination of desolation is not so much Zeus being set up in there. It's that the high priests of Israel will give in to idolatry. That's the abomination. And so a pig is sacrificed on the altar, another abomination, because a pig was never part of God's sacrificial system. It was an unclean animal. Um, And then in verse 36, I want you to look at that. Chapter 11, verse 36, we have a change in scene. Verse 36 says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. This king is not Antiochus because Antiochus was never called a king. He was referred to, as we read, as a usurper. This king, most people seem to agree that he is a new figure in the story. And the question is, then, who is the king? Um, Some people say it would be Herod the Great, who represented the Roman rule in Israel. Others say, no, this is looking far further into the future, and this is someone like Antiochus who's going to do even more abominable things, someone that we have culturally come to call the Antichrist. So whatever it is, um, I would say that the Antichrist is more consistent with Daniel's visions. You may remember in chapter 7, there were the four beasts, which are the kingdoms we've just been covering. Babylon falls to Persia, Persia falls to Greece, and Greece falls to Rome. And Rome is described as having a little horn that comes up out of it. Um, This little horn is believed to be uh, this future Antichrist, perhaps. Uh, And he's going to speak these blasphemies against God. Um, We're going to see this in chapter 9 as well. But this is the king figure. This is maybe, possibly, far out into our future. Or maybe even next week. Who knows? Um, Okay, so that is... The rest of the chapter. Then chapter 12 is much simpler. (laughs) Chapter 12, verse 1. So at that time, if indeed there's an Antichrist giving great persecutions against God's people, he then says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn away to right those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Here is a vision of the great resurrection at the end of time. So all this, this, this future chaos is coming to a close when the dead are raised. That's what we're being presented with. So then the rest of chapter 12 is Daniel asking questions. Daniel's um, being told to seal up the book. That angel we read a a moment ago says, how long shall this be? And then they're told a number of figures. Um, 
1,290 days, 1,335 days, and nobody on the planet seems to agree about what those numbers mean. All we know, and remember, this is this is just my take on it, is if, if the Bible's giving us a number, it means it's not eternal. It means, take heart, this is a temporal period. This will come to an end. Um, both of them, by the way, are roughly three and a half years. Keep that in your mind, because this will come into chapter 9. Okay. Good crash course? If it's a little bit like, I'm not sure I... Just remember, this is all intertestamental period. You don't actually have to understand this to understand the New Testament, so you're in good ground, okay? But Daniel does see it to show us that God is in charge of the things that are coming, and it's to remind us, man, don't panic. Be patient. These empires and their horrendous deeds are going to fall. It's all petty. Keep to the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes where it matters. And that's what Daniel wants us to do. Okay, so chapter 9. Daniel is essentially asking the question we opened with. Are we there yet? And here's why he's asking. So he's reading the prophecies of Jeremiah, which sometimes we just don't think about this. We look at the books of the Bible as like these individual units, and we forget that some of these guys overlapped each other. They knew each other. They heard each other preach. They read each other's writings. Um, Jeremiah wrote letters to the exiles in Babylon. Daniel surely knew some of Jeremiah's writings. Um, Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon, while Daniel's in Babylon. So these three prophets overlap. And Daniel's reading Jeremiah, and he comes to this realization of, wait a minute, we're almost there. The empire's about to fall. We'll explain that in a second. Then that leads Daniel to pray. He prays not just for himself, but he prays for the kingdom of Israel. He prays for his people. He's an intercessor, which is what a true prophet does. Prophets don't just spew off these grand visions. They, through these visions, now understand how to pray their intercessors primarily. Um, He intercedes for Israel. Then Gabriel shows up to him and gives him a message about when the world will come to an end. (laughs) And if only it was clearer than it is. So, chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, that's the Medes and the Persians were a combined empire, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, that's a word for Babylon. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Here's what Daniel's saying. I'm reading Jeremiah, and in two places I notice Jeremiah says, oh, our exile to Babylon will be 70 years long. And Daniel's going, oh, we're about there. Um, Jeremiah 29. You can jot this down. Um, I'll read a couple verses to you from this. Jeremiah 29, it's his famous letter. You know this chapter, even if you don't know, you know it right now. And you'll hear why. Jeremiah says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the peoples who Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That includes Daniel. Daniel's one of those taken up to Babylon. Jeremiah is saying, here's my letter to the people in Babylon. And here's what he says in Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. Jeremiah writing this letter says, Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So there is your postcard verse and the context of which is God saying, I've numbered the days of evil, so I know for sure your good days are coming. That's what Jeremiah is saying. But he also prophesies 70 years for Babylon in, Dan, uh, in Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, do you remember, we actually looked at this a couple weeks ago. Do you remember what happened in Jer- uh, Daniel chapter 5? Do you remember what Belshazzar did, which was so abominable? He took the cups from the temple of the Lord and they were drinking wine out of them. 
And we looked at Jeremiah 25, because you remember what Jeremiah 25 prophesied about the fall of Babylon? This is what he prophesied. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, The God of Israel said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And then skipping to the end of this message, the Lord then says, All the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth shall drink of the cup. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. Daniel is at this scene. Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is drinking from the cup. And I guarantee Daniel is connecting this scene with Jeremiah's prophecy. Babylon shall drink last. And guess what happens that very night? The Persians take over Babylon. (laughs) Belshazzar drinks the prophecy of doom down his throat. The reason we're coming back to this, however, is because in the verses right before Jeremiah is saying Babylon shall drink the cup, you know what he says? He says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and all these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity. So Daniel sees them drinking the cup. He sees Babylon falls at night. And then he's scurrying to his, his scrolls of, of Jeremiah, right? So chapter 9 is really right after. You can tell by the, it says, the first year Darius. Uh, chapter 9 is right after chapter 5, right after Babylon falls. Jeremiah, he's searching Jeremiah. And he's like, oh, 70 years. This must be it. So what does this lead him to do? Take all of his stocks out of the stock market and have a spending spree? No, no. Daniel prays. This prayer, starting in verse 3, is saturated with scriptures. He's telling God who God is. And then he's confessing to God who Israel is. Sinful. And a lot of this prayer is structured after 1 Kings chapter 8. In 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon had just built the temple. And King Solomon, in dedicating the temple to God, gives this long prayer. And part of the prayer, Solomon says, When we sin and are taken to far away nations, hear from this holy house when we confess our sins. That's what Solomon says. Daniel is doing what Solomon told them to do. He's a prophet. He is an intercessor for the people. So now Daniel's turning his face toward the Jerusalem, which is now in ruins. The temple's not there. And it's as if Daniel recognizes the weight of the moment. God is about to finish the 70 years and bring Israel back to Jerusalem and the temple will be restored. Daniel recognizes his role here and he is going to intercede. So let's read his prayer. He recognizes it's time for the Lord to act. So verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. One more insight, which I think just has to be said here. If this is right after Babylon falls in Daniel 5, do you remember what Daniel 6 was? It was the first year of Darius, right? And, And during this transition period, he outlawed praying. For 30 days, and Daniel's caught praying and thrown in the lion's den. It's very, very hypothetical and likely that we're looking at what he's praying during that time. This may be an overlap. Okay, so he's praying with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Verse 4 I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Oh Lord. By the way, before we go in, understand confession works two ways. You confess your sins to God, this is who I am. We also confess creeds about who God is. This is who you are. Confession's a two-way street. This is who I am, but this is who you are. Okay? Daniel's going to do both. So, he made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That's from Deuteronomy. We have sinned and done wrong, and acted wickedly, and rebelled. That is straight from 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon's prayer. Turning aside from your commandments and rules, 
We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside refusing to obey your voice for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Israel As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insights by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, Incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Wow. Makes you feel like you don't know how to pray, doesn't it? <laughs> Notice, though, what Daniel models for us is he prays scripture. You you might have recognized many of these phrases. There's just too many to cite, just from all over the Old Testament. What Daniel models for us is that we don't just tell God what we want. We tell him what we want with God's own words. Right? You you said this would happen, and you we, we plea on who he is, and that is how we're taught to pray in the Bible. Um, That's what Daniel does. And so Gabriel responds. Gabriel's one of the high, he's an archangel. And actually um, we think of archangels as really magnificent because people usually fall down dead before them. But um, actually just before angels and archangels are above angels. But um, we know that archangels and angels are some of the lowest ranks of the heavenly beings because cherubim and seraphim are the top. Well, and of course, God and the Son of God, like they're way up there, of course, too. But cherubim and seraphim are greater. So like we're in the lower ranks of angels that are coming and they have all this power. It's just astonishing. So Gabriel comes to Daniel in verse 29. Um, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Remember we saw in Daniel 6 that Daniel prayed three times a day. And it was very likely he did during the morning and evening sacrifice. The temple would always do sacrifices in the morning and evening and probably somewhere in the middle. So here we see he's doing the evening prayer. 
Of course, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices, so the prayers are that much more important. This is Daniel's sacrifice to the Lord in the absence of the temple. We engaging with God in prayer is the worship. It's the temple. The Holy Spirit in us is the temple. And Daniel is engaging with God at that time. It says in verse 22, He, Gabriel, made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay. So, verse 24 to the end of our chapter, it's five verses. Um, it's dense. And here's how, what we need to understand before we look at it. Daniel recognizes Jeremiah's 70 years of exile are about to be finished. All right, Lord, restore the kingdom. Gabriel's going to come to Daniel and say, in essence, this. Oh, Daniel, it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks. Now, that's a Hebrew way of saying sevens. It's 70 sevens. So, oh, Daniel, it's not 70 years. I'm so sorry. It's 70 sevens. In other words, it's 490 years. <laughs> that's not to say that Jeremiah got it wrong. It's to say that, okay, yes, Israel's going to come back to the land. We're going to see that next week as we get into Ezra and Nehemiah. They're back in the land. So yes, the Babylonian part of things is over after 70 years. But the true end of your exile is actually 70 weeks away. It's way out there. And we know that the Israelites saw themselves in exile when Christ came to earth because the gospel writers write about things and use pictures of Christ coming to lead his people out of exile and into the kingdom of God. So Daniel gets his little let down, but then wait, the vision is greater than I ever expected. So it's not 47 years, it's, uh, it's not 70 years, it's 70 weeks, or it's 40 490 years. Oh, man. Okay. Now, here's where this gets a little sticky. Um, I do not believe, for, for very good reasons, and I don't want to get super deep into this, um, but I don't believe that the 70 years of Babylon or the 70 weeks of this future plan are literal in the sense of Israel was actually in Babylon for 70 years exactly, and this 40, the 79-week period is exactly 490 years. I, I don't see them that way. You can't add things up that way. Some people have tried, and they fudge dates, and they kind of say, oh, it starts at this date to make it work. I'm not convinced by any of it. And, and here's the reason why. Uh, Israel was not in Babylon for 70 years. Just start right there. Jeremiah was not saying, well, God has counted down exactly 70 years and then you'll be released. What Jeremiah was saying is that your time in Babylon will be like 70 years. What does 70 years represent in the Bible? Well, in I, what? Ah, uh, close. Very close. Um, in Isaiah chapter 23, um, Isaiah says that the, the kingdom of Tyre has 70 years counted for them. And then Isaiah says, like the days of a king. In other words, Isaiah is saying, um, Tyre will last the length of a king's life. Uh, couple this now with Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, you have Moses writing, um, the years of man's life are 70 years, 80 if he is strong. So 70 is just shorthand for a lifespan. Israel will be in Babylon for a lifespan. And Daniel seems to have no problem of counting the years and, oh, it's just short of 70. He seems to think it's figurative of just a lifespan because he's like, dude, I'm 90. It's time. Like, I got here in my teens. It's time. I sense it's time. Daniel seems to take it that way. Um, so what then you have here with the 70 weeks is you have this number 70 times 7, which gives you 490. 490 is also a very important number because... Think of Leviticus chapter 25. 
Leviticus 25 is where a lot of the festivals of Israel are described. There's one important festival called the year of Jubilee. When did the year of Jubilee happen? Every 50th year. And this is how Leviticus puts it. You shall count seven weeks of years. Same phrasing, right? Weeks. Seven weeks of years. And then he says seven times seven years. So that, he does the math for you, so that uh, the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So what happens after 49 years? Well, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. So, at the end of 49 years, people who had to move from their home out of poverty or other circumstances get to move back to their home. That's what the year of Jubilee was about, a debt forgiveness. What we have in Daniel chapter 9 is 49 years tenfold. Or put it another way, it's not just a jubilee, it's the jubilee. This is the jubilee of jubilees. Daniel is given a vision of when the great return from exile will happen and people will come flooding into Jerusalem as the kingdom of God realized on earth. That's what Daniel's seeing. I hope you follow. I I hope you agree with me. Um, But if not, you can work out the math and that's fine. I like, this is simpler to me. (laughs) Um, This is the great return to exile. So um, this is bigger than Israel coming home. Daniel is seeing a picture of all of lost humanity coming home. Because really, Israel's exile out of the promised land was Adam's exile out of Eden. Israel simply joined the rest of humanity in their expulsion from the presence of God. The great jubilee, the 70 weeks, is going to be when, now we know through Christ, all the exiles, all humanity gets to come back to Eden to live in the presence of God. That is what these 70 weeks are about. Amen? Amen. I hope you're somewhat excited about that. So, um... This is why, by the way, this is why in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1 opens with visitations from who? Which angel? Gabriel. Gabriel. What's Luke doing? He's making sure we see the connection. The 70 weeks are being fulfilled. Um, This is why in Luke chapter 3, we have John the forerunner, or John the Baptist, being introduced from a quote from Isaiah 40. What does Isaiah 40 say? It says, Comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, for her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. In other words, Isaiah 40 is saying there will be a time when God soothes over the exile and heals his people. What does Luke 3 say? John the forerunner is the time when this is happening. Uh, This is also why Luke chapter 4 has Jesus coming into his hometown synagogue, opening the scroll of Isaiah and reading from Isaiah 61, which is a prophecy of the great jubilee. Isaiah 61 says, uh, Jesus is reading this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor when everyone who's lived in oppression and exiled from their homes or in, in, in bankruptcy are all forgiven. And Isaiah is saying, there's this great day when this is going to happen worldwide. And Jesus takes the scroll and says, you know what he says after he rolls up the scroll? Mic drop. Today, this is being fulfilled in your midst. You see what Luke is doing? The great Jubilee of Jubilees is being fulfilled. So, let's look at the 70 weeks. That was quite an introduction to him, huh? Okay, so verse 24. 70 weeks are declared... I know, I made that sound maybe clearer than it's going to sound now. Just go with me. (laughs) 70 weeks are declared about your people and your holy city. And here's six things that will happen. When the 70 weeks are complete... These six things will happen. 
One, to finish the transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, to atone for iniquity. Four, to bring an everlasting righteousness. Five, to seal both vision and profit, bring it all to fulfillment. Six, and to anoint a most holy place, which I take to mean the holy place, a new temple built, and maybe even further to anoint the holy of holies. Um, That's what's going to happen at the Jubilee of Jubilees. Okay, now here's where it gets a little sticky, because that's pretty clear. So, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. Now, anointed one in Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah. Okay? It's not very hard to fill in the blank here. Um, So, from the time to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem um, and the temples, this is the Ezra-Nehemiah period, which is just, it's on the doorstep of Daniel 9. Um, From that time to the coming of Messiah, is what we're reading, a a prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, um, I like the ESV. I think it's one of three of the best translations out there. I won't name them all so that you won't be offended. But... um, For all of the greatness of the ESV, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible translation. (laughs) Who's reading the ESV right now? Can I see how many people are completely lost at the moment? (laughs) Okay, so um, so maybe half of you or the rest of you aren't admitting it. Um, The ESV puts, there shall be seven weeks, period. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats. It really makes it confusing. It makes it sound like the Messiah is coming in seven weeks. And then Jerusalem will be built in 62 weeks later after that. It really doesn't make sense. The Hebrew doesn't demand it read that way. And all the other translations choose to read it like the way I read it to you. There shall be a prince. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So these V just dropped the ball here. What we have is two periods of time put together. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. So... From the beginning of the word to rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, you have seven and 62 weeks. We have two time periods. Why are they divided up? Again, this is not to be added up into a literal 490 years. These are periods of time. There could be gaps. There could be who knows what between. We're seeing two periods of timekeeping. And um, so we continue. Um, There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Troubled time refers to Daniel chapter 11, the Maccabean period, right? The city will be back, the temple will be back, but it was a chaotic, persecuted time. Um, Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. We take that to mean the crucifixion of Jesus. So, seven weeks Here's what we've got so far. Seven, week is, seven weeks is the period of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. Is it literally 49 years? You're going to have a hard time adding that up. But this is a seven-week period. It's, it is a little miniature jubilee. You see that? It's 49 years. It's a little miniature jubilee. It's a period when the people come back and build the city and the temple. Yay, hurrah! Then we have a 62-week period. So from whenever that is to the death of Messiah is what that's saying. Christ will come and die at the end of these 62 weeks. Okay? And Luke's picking up on that with his messages in Luke chapter, well, we just went over that. He's picking up on says, hey, we are at the end of the 62 weeks. The 70th week is around the corner. And so now that's what we read. Um, we're almost there. So the Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. This is like the middle of 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, this is where it gets confusing because now you're like, wait, is this prince the Messiah or is this another person? Did Jesus come and destroy the city and the temple? Uh, Some people actually say yes. He did away with the law. That's one way to read that. 
Um, another way to read this is that the Roman Empire, after the crucifixion of Christ, AD 70, they destroy the city and the temple quite literally. And it's probably referring to the Romans at this point. Its end shall come with the flood, and at the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. AD 70 was a horrific time for the Jews. They were crucified by the thousands outside the walls of Jerusalem. Verse 27. Now we come to the last week, the 70th week. So we have a seven-week period, a 62-week period, and a one-week period. Verse 27. And he, who's he? Hugely contested point in all of the commentaries. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And Daniel's like, where's your interpretation? Oh, you're gone. Okay. (laughs) Uh, He. Um, Like we saw in Daniel 11, the king appears, seems to be a new figure. Um, I take the same here. He becomes a new figure. Uh, This is... Probably the little horn in Daniel 7 from the fourth beast. This is probably, um, we already saw that, the king in Daniel 11. This is that antichrist figure who's against God, against God's people. And we see that um, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. This means he's against worship of God. And so he's going to come. He's going to make a covenant for a week. He's going to break it in the middle and persecute God's people. Uh, but then he's going to be destroyed and the 40, the 70 weeks are done. What comes next? The end of transgression, the end of sin, the end of iniquity, the anointing of the holy place, right? The new heavens and the new earth. This is the holy of holies. God and humans living together forever. (laughs) Beautiful end. Um, That's what we see. So this last week we can get really bogged down in, but I want to actually say something that I feel like some commentators missed. And the phrase one week should not, uh, this should take us directly to the the standard biblical theology of a one-week period. Can anyone say for me what happens in one week in the Bible? Thank you. (laughs) This last week, this 70th week, it's right before the great Jubilee of Jubilees. I, I don't know that I'm going too far by saying that this is a transitory period. This is a new week of creation. Yep, it's chaotic because this is the devil's last chance to have his say before his time is over and God is bringing something new. Paul said the new creation is coming through birth pangs. And perhaps this last week is, make, is, is to make us think of the new heavens and new earth being birthed through trouble sometimes. Perhaps. But so there you go. Some people see this, this figure not as an antichrist, but as Christ himself. Because he makes a covenant. Didn't Christ make a covenant with us? But then how do you describe the fact, though, that Christ breaks the covenant halfway through? Well, he ends sacrifices and offerings because you don't need the temple anymore. Okay, I, I could see that, but that's inconsistent with Daniel's teaching that there's troublesome time right before the end. Remember Daniel 12? Michael comes and puts an end to the persecutions, and then the resurrection happens. It seems that trouble is all the way up to the threshold of the great Jubilee of Jubilees. So that's, it seems to me, the most consistent take. Okay. Whew, you guys are doing well. If you're awake, and if you're here still, and you haven't left or gone to the bathroom three times, you're doing really well. Um... So here's, here's what we do with this. We ask, are we there yet? And Daniel says, no. We have 70 weeks. Where are we in the 70 weeks? All that we have seen so far is that Christ was cut off. Right? We have gone to the end of 7 and 62 weeks. So we are at the end of 69 weeks. So are we in the 70th week? Is the 70th week ahead? You could squabble about the technical aspects of your theology on that all you want. The bottom line is, we are not at the end of the 70th week. This is not the Jubilee of Jubilees. We are not there yet. So what we must do is the church must survive this period of struggle and persecution under the spirit of Babylon and 
not the Antichrist yet, but the spirit of Antichrist. We must struggle through this. How? Not by violence, but by patience. Because we see the end. It's rolled out for us. And Daniel says this so that we have hope and that we can hold on with patience. Why do we need patience? Because Daniel, as you've seen through these four chapters we covered, he sees a lot of struggle for the people of God ahead. We need patience to struggle. We need patience because in chapter 12, we saw the resurrection. Our struggle will be worth the reward. Never forget that, that our struggle comes with resurrection. Uh, uh, Albert read Romans 8 for us, and that's what it said. Um, We will become co-heirs provided we suffer with him, right? We are patient to the end. Uh, We also need patience because time is measured, 70 weeks, that's it. That's all the world has. That's all the kingdoms of Babylon and the spirit of Babylon have. It's measured. Be patient, brothers and sisters. And don't feel like your vote for one party or the other is going to bring the kingdom of God any faster. Sorry. (laughs) That's not how it works. It is important to vote for good people, please. Yes, do. We want our lives to be okay, but it's not the kingdom of God. Time is measured. Keep praying. Keep worshiping. Keep being faithful. We stop these things when we stop being patient. We lose the sense of time. We forget that there's a beginning and an end. We forget that there is a jubilee of jubilees that has been decreed and that God will fulfill this. We must hold on to patience. And this isn't, again, this isn't passive. It's purposeful. Patience is not a solo project where I just kind of wing my own Christian life waiting for the end. Patience is survival when it's done in solidarity. My patience is strengthened by Randy's patience and by Annika's patience. And as we are patient together, the solidarity of patient Christians creates the survival of the church in the kingdom of Babylon. So, Let's close by asking, how do we exercise a purposeful patience? How do we do this? Following Daniel's example, first, we practice a purposeful patience through confessing who God is and who we are. Get used to confessing who God is. Always declare who he is. This is why we let you give thanks to God every single Sunday and to praise him for who he is. Because we need to remind ourselves and each other, this is the God we're before tonight. We confess who he is, but then we confess who we are as well. We uh, confess who we are first, and then we confess who he is in our worship together. Um, This is what Daniel does. And he confesses the people's sins, but he also confesses his sins. We saw it going both ways. Daniel sees himself with his people. And the one thing that confessing our sins will do is it will establish a patience among us because we will realize we're not even ready for the end of time, are we? I sure, I want to be, I want to get a lot more of my act together before the end of time. And confessing my sins reminds me that I don't have it together. And that there's a lot I can improve. And what also that helps me do is it helps me to realize, okay, I need to grow here so I can stop proving everybody else wrong. This is the posture of the church today is that we're right and y'all, you are wrong. This is not a patient posture. This is a, we're trying to make the kingdom of God happen right now by showing the losers and the sinners that they are cast out and we are what's up. Nope. We're not at the end of the 70 weeks yet. Our posture is we are sorry, God. Help us to grow into your people truly. Second, we practice purposeful patience through intercessory prayer like Daniel. So, does the world grieve you? You know what to do. Pray for it. Does the state of the church grieve you? Cool. Don't don't start putting other churches down. Pray for them. You get down on your knees and intercede for them. We intercede for our pastors, we intercede for our people, and I need your intercessory prayers as I intercede for you. This is how the church works, this is how the church grows, this is how the church is blessed by God, because prayer is the heartbeat of what we do. Um, Spurgeon, to make a story really short, I shared this at Gus's memorial, um, Spurgeon, when he was asked about the secret of his ministry, he took people down to what he called his boiler room, down in the basement where always some hundred people praying for him and for the church. 
That's the power, Spurgeon said. That's the secret to the power of this ministry. And that is where we will be and the church at large. We must intercede for the kingdom of God in the churches of God. And then finally, we practice purposeful patience by encouraging each other with the coming jubilee. That's just, that's just Daniel speak. That's Old Testament speak for we encourage each other with the coming of Christ. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Gathering is in churches. It's also in homes. We must continue to encourage one another and spur each other on in our patience for the coming jubilee. And 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26. For as often you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we, we receive communion every week because we need patience. And Christ shows us. Yep, the way to the cross isn't pulling out your sword and cutting off ears, Peter. It's patiently suffering, and through the suffering of God's people, evil is overcome. So through purposeful patience, we will conquer Babylon, because the kingdom of God will outlast Babylon. So be patient.